I think you should keep a changelog. It probably should be a markdown, and I think it should be called changelog.md. But what should be in it? In this episode, I interview Olivier Lacan, the creator of keepachangelog.com, which is a really great reference for what you should and should not put in your changelog. A fabulous recent sponsor of Test and Code is Porkbun. It's a pretty darn cool domain name registrar, but really, what makes it different? I wanted to know, so I asked. Stick around until the end of the episode. I have a short few-minute interview with Eddie Barksdale from Porkbun about why you should consider them. Welcome to Test and Code. Welcome to Test and Code. I am thrilled to have Olivier Lacan, and I, I'm sure I mispronounced your name. You actually didn't. Okay. That's uh, pretty good. So is that is that French? Yes. Okay. I'm okay. from the France. And you're also from the, the land of sky blue waters, or from Ruby land. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Is that where you spend most of your time? I don't know that there's anything sky blue about it. It's more, <laughs> it's more <laughs> ruby red. There's, there's issues sometimes. Okay. But yeah, that's my community of, of choice uh, that okay. I fell into. Yeah, I asked you on because I, um, because I, I have in the next couple episodes, I'm going to talk about a couple tools around keeping a change log. Um, and, and I've been referencing a website called keep a change log for a long time. Um, and it's just, uh, it's good to have that w- this website here just as, you know, if people ask me, why should I keep a change log? I just put them here. Uh, and I think a lot of people do. Um, so we are going to talk about that. But then when I was researching this episode, I found out that you're a Ruby developer and you're also the same, the person that started shields.io, which I think I probably use on at least one of my projects. So that's kind of a neat thing. So per- first of all, uh, welcome and uh, Olivier. And other than being a Ruby person, um, who are you? I'm a, I'm a French person. That was the the early <laughs> the early thing. Uh, some people don't believe that because the accent is not as obvious. But very very French. Uh, I actually moved to Florida. Yes, when I was 23, I think. Oh wow! I went to school there, um, and originally I, I wasn't I wasn't a student of computer science. Actually, I've, I've never been a student of computer science. I just went to kind of a practical web design development school. Um, and okay. I, I was a web designer. That's the thing that I learned on my own. I was just, I was really web design focused, which actually informs some of the conversations that we're going to have, um, notably shields, okay. but, but also keep a shield log because as a web designer, you know, in a sea of programmers and, and web server people, it can be really hard to kind of, you know, understand what's going on. I just remember how lost I was just trying to use software to learn how to put up a website. And a lot of those software packages or you know, sometimes zip files or just random scripts you'd find would have very, very limited documentation. I just remember how hard it was for me to try to cross the Rubicon of being a, ha, pun intended, uh, the, of, of trying to be a webby person, but wanting to make a server run or wanting to talk to a database from my HTML or, you know, from my front end. And it took a lot of effort. It's easier now, but it's still really tricky to know what's going on when you land on a on an open source tool, which is yeah. why these two projects exist, honestly. Okay. Uh, which, and, uh, which was a, the first or are they kind of around the same time? Shields was the one where I think I was working at Code School at the time. So I was uh, there's a company uh, in in Florida, uh, a consultancy that did Ruby development in VLabs, and they they did a lot of kind of like high high profile like big Ruby sites, and they had to kind of explain the same stuff over and over again how to use either Ruby or Rails. There was Try Ruby existed at the time because um, that the community was fairly friendly to beginners on the Ruby side. But on the rail side, it was very kind of like, you know, Heroku, I think, helped some people get started with Rails, but it was just kind of rough. Um, so I think they, they for a conference for, um, I don't know if it was RubyConf or RailsConf or even OSCON, they created 
kind of a boot camp version of of what became uh, the learn by doing approach of like I show you a video really quickly and then we're going to hop in the browser and then actually write some code rather than like try to do it on your machine and then waste a day trying to get in dependencies installed. So okay. that's where I worked at the time, and we did a lot of stuff with open source you know software. And we also developed courses really quickly. So we'd kind of like get in the weeds of like, oh my God, what did we use on this version? We had to upgrade. We had to do a lot of platform upgrades and a lot of open source, you know, package upgrades. And it was just really, really hard. And it was around the time where code, um, I think code metrics stuff, startups started popping up. Code Climate was popping up. Uh, Travis CI was popping up. There's a lot of CI tools would show up on readme files. So you'd start seeing these like kind of like, kind of like web ring, you know, uh, forum badge yeah. looking things show up on readmes and they were really ugly. Yeah, I think actually, I think Jenkins is the, yes. not Jenkins, but but Travis was the first one. First time I used a badge was to show what the test, re, you know, the test result yeah. run was from canvas i mean the the intent made sense right like it was it, it was logical to want to say hey here are the tests for this package like look we have tests <laughs> like yeah, they're and, they're and not running. just we have tests but they're running and they're passing and that was the cool yeah. thing some of them had a status which is really cool and it was kind of static it was like a red or a green or something like that and yeah. they just had pngs or or, or gifs even sometimes um and then what really started to get under my skin is I started seeing people use readmes as a, an ad platform. So these badges started turning into, that's my startup here. Like we made a thing and it's called, and it didn't provide any value. It was just mm. a logo. And there's just a huge one missed opportunity to, you know, first of all, missed opp opportunity to provide information that's useful to the actual user of the readme yeah. and be like, this is tests are good. This is the version number. This is, what we support, like a version of Ruby that we're using, version of Python that we're using. Um, and it was so, so obvious that people were missing that. And the other was like, you're kind of being hawkish, right? You're hawking your, your thing and it's just kind of gross and it's making me mad. So quite literally at like 11, I think, or middle of the night, I was just like, I wrote a blog post called An Open Source Rage Diamond. And I think I have the timestamp of the first commit on Shields, which was January 29th, 2013 at 11.55 PST. So it might have been like even later in the night because I was in Orlando. So super late, really cranky. And I just I just wrote one commit that was a readme and a PSD. And the PSD was just, I think you can actually see PSDs or like Photoshop files in uh, GitHub now. But it was just a homogenized, well-designed, rounded edges, neat, like, key value legible typeface normal size not too big not too small just at, at, at 16 pixels or something like this really small thing and that's mm. it that was the beginning of the project and then i just oh. the rest of it was convincing people like please <laughs> please stop using these ugly things and like provide <laughs> value and we had so many conversations with a bunch of different companies i think travis and code climate and uh, a bunch of hosts like package hosts for Ruby, hmm. I think. Anyway, okay. That's all that. But there's, so it's grown to be a lot of stuff. So you've got different mm -hmm. shields for, or maybe these are just examples or are they free form? No, they, they actually fully formed. So th this is, I just told you the genesis, but like the part where it was wild is when you have an idea, a lot of the time you, you think like, oh, this is such a great, idea. I didn't think this was a great idea. I, I just hated, I hated what the reality was. It just made me mad. So I just said, how about this? <laughs> what, what if we do this? And I made the repo like CC0 public domain. I don't want credit for this. I, I, I just want people to not do this other thing. Please, I beg yeah. you. A bunch of people that I knew or even didn't know on Twitter and GitHub and other places were like, oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. So they helped me either make PNGs by hand out of that PSD, which was a nightmare, by the way, completely didn't scale. <laughs> Uh, and eventually a bunch of really smart, like dedicated people made different implementations in different languages, which is okay. really interesting because you, you would assume as a Rubyist, that would be like, probably let's do that. I'll make a, I'll make a server that just makes these images in the background. Yeah. 
didn't feel like doing <laughs> I honestly, <laughs> I had so much stuff to do at the time that I, I just didn't have the capacity. So I asked, and it turns out a bunch of people had already did that. There was a Node version. There was a Python version, I think. It might have been a PHP version. And in the okay. end, I think the one that won, drum roll, can you guess? Uh, don't know. See? <laughs> node. It, it was Node. node. Okay. I, th I think it was Node because simply because they, there was a lot of excitement in that community at the time. So they were, they were, I th it, it was a really, really nice developer too. It wasn't just the technology. It was the person who did it was super nice and uh, helped a lot with setting up kind of like the basic foundations of an API called nowadays img.shields.io that you can hit with very simple query param parameters to retrieve. So if you click on any of the examples you see, or there's even a, a badge generator on shields.io, you can put a label saying like, hello, and then a message called world. And then you just pick a color, bright green, boom, and then you have a badge. And it looks great. It's literally img.shields.io slash badge slash hello dash world dash bright green. And it's, mm. a gr it's brilliant. It's simple. It's, you know, parameters doing what they're supposed to do. You can make it, you know, more complicated than that. But if you have a website or an app, all you have to do is just like put that in. It's cached. Really, really smart caching logic. And then that's it. You get the value that you want. So like, but okay. So for things like, like go back to my like testing status or something like that. Yeah. Test results. Um, I don't actually want to write the hard coded yeah. description of it. I want it to look somehow it to look up from the results. So who's doing that? Who's it like? Uh, it's contributors. Honestly, I mean, there's there's maintainers like with years and years. It's been I think it's been 10 years. We just celebrated the 10 year anniversary in February, I think. But yeah, 20th, okay. 2013, 23. Uh, and uh, originally, it was a bunch of people submitting PRs and saying, here's an adapter that looks up the organization name, the repo name on this thing and figures out like, okay, where's the CI? Is it running? Is it not running? Uh, okay. We also did a lot of collaborations with different vendors to actually get them to implement. Like Either they sh go out to Shields and make the badge, and that way you can use it there. So it, it varies among... Um, supports for different platforms but if you look on the website and you click on say builds there's so many providers you know travis oh, yeah. github drone codeship cyrus azure like just everything you can think of that were integrated yeah. team city even and there's so yeah, many I'm categories actually, like yeah. yeah dependencies downloads funding all of these things that you might want to say about your project in kind of a concise way and the the pitch that i gave to so many of those companies was you're going to get traffic The people are going to see the value you're providing. Sure. It's not plastering your logo on the readme, which might be less fun than your marketing team wants. Um, <laughs> but, but the people, if you do good stuff, they're, they'll come to you. They'll click on that. And now it's both actionable as in there's, there's an action you can take on the, on click on the read, the readme badge itself, but the data in the readme is helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and then it's like uh, it's opt-in advertising. So the the person with the repository, the open source maintainer, gets to decide: Do I am I okay with linking to this service? Yeah. And if I'm getting value from it, then yeah, sure, why not? Um, and they decide exactly. Yeah, uh, but also I don't really want to have it be too spammy because I'm as a maintainer, I'm not making money off of this, right? Or anything, so, yeah. and it makes you look bad. I mean, yeah. Eventually, you know, you you want people to be attracted to your project, so. What it's still to this day, it kind of breaks my brain. At the time, we had conversations with people at GitHub, and they were saying like, "Ooh, we don't know if we want to do this because eventually, the first API to make a, a dynamic badge ended up being XML, right? You use uh, underlying SVG, but it's XML, right? So, okay, uh, so the code that actually makes these, and I had an, an an amazing epiphany moment the other day. I went to GitHub to set up an action, and then GitHub prompted me, "Do you want a badge?" And I was like, oh, wait, hold on. Does GitHub have badges now? And so I lo I loaded the badge and looked, you know, virtually the same as the original design that wasn't just, I didn't come up with it. I just refined something that was already kind of there. The, yeah. you know, it's gray on one side, it's green on the other. Um, 
And I, I just couldn't believe how close it was. So I loaded the source code of the SVG and compared it to the shields.io output, which is, I don't, I don't, I don't maintain that anymore. It's, it's a bunch of really, really cool people that, that work on this, but it looks virtually the same. Like if you look at the source for these two things, it's basically they followed the convention, right? They yeah. just like, they, I don't know if they use shields and the, they probably don't want to depend on that because I think the worry at the time was, Ooh, it can execute some stuff. You know, it might be a vector of vulnerability and might, yeah. we might not want to be involved in that. Yeah, but it's kind of cool that you've, you kind of opened that up to say, you do it yourself if you want, but uh, this is how it should look and this is how it should behave. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, but, and you, yeah it's surprising how often these tiny nudges uh, are not on the radar of the, the companies or the services that you and a simple suggestion like hey have you seen this this is helpful it goes a long way this episode is sponsored by Porkbun, a refreshingly different domain name registrar with over 500 domain extensions available Porkbun offers everything from .com and .net to .app .tech and .dev Every pork bun domain comes with lots of freebies like SSL certificates, who is privacy, URL forwarding, and hosting trials, all backed by five-year support, 365 days a year. For tech folks, it gets even more exciting. They've even launched a new AI-generated search tool using ChatGPT that is leading the change in how people search for domain names. To celebrate the fifth anniversary of .app, Porkbun is offering a .app or .dev domain name for free to test and code listeners. To get your .app or .dev domain name for free, visit porkbun.com slash testandcode or click the link in the show notes. Thank you, Porkbun, for sponsoring this episode. That's Shields.io. And keep a change log. Um, how'd that start? I think that it started with uh, reading 100,000 readmes and trying to find change logs or history.mds or, you know, uh, all the other names that people have used throughout. So there's big religious debates about how to name these things. And that's actually one of the reasons why it's so hard to find them, right? Like, do you, yeah. what is it going to be called? Is it going to be releases? Is it going to be history? Uh, and I had, because I was maintaining codeschool.com, like the platform, I had to do a lot of platform upgrades with, you know, peer dependencies that are blocking some very important platform upgrade that you want to do to this new framework or this new language. So you have to read a lot of readmes and a lot of uh, release notes. And I just, I just got so exhausting. I remember uh, my at the time, almost coworker, we uh, we worked kind of like across two companies that were sister companies, Envy Labs and Code School. Nate Bibler, who was a longtime Ruby developer at at that company, had kind of like made a guide to finding good dependencies for Ruby, in which okay. he said specifically, look at the change log. Like it's helpful if that change log is like this, and also when he produced you know, the packages or the Ruby gems in this case, he was very methodical about putting a version number in uh, a markdown file that had a heading with, you know, the, the version number dash the, the date time it was released, and then a bunch of bullets that explained very importantly if there's breaking changes or if there's like major uh, new features or something like that. And I kind of took that mold and said, okay, if I explain to people why it's like that, I think it'll help. Because yeah. it's not just copy this thing. A lot of people do that. But here's why it's not all your git commits. And a yeah. lot of people were doing that at the time. They were dumping. That's why the, the tag, the tagline was like, don't let your chain, like, I forget, I forget what I wrote. Don't let your friends dump git logs into change logs. Because that yeah. was just normal. Everyone did it. It was like, oh, here's a change log. Even Ruby did it. The Ruby release notes were just a dump of all of the... Com it was just impossible to parse that because they were really busy and they had a lot of things yeah. that changed. I'm actually seeing that even more in internal projects as well. Internal, yeah. uh, not open source projects, but internal. Um, you've got... Uh, and these are, these are like uh, change reports that really only go to internal people. But 
the internal people aren't necessarily going to care about all the detail. It's the, right. You have to write. And that's one of the things. So I'm also going to link to, you did a great interview and this is way back in what, 2014 or something like that. Uh, with, um, with the change log team, the, the, uh, that's funny. Um, kind of meta. It feels like it was a couple of weeks ago and yeah. Yeah. It was a, a great interview, but you go through all, all the, like tons of the history and, and talking about it a lot. But one of the things that you brought up that I want to highlight is the audience is different. Um, the, the, or at least the, it might be the same audience, but the mentality is different. When you're looking at a change log, they're oh, yeah. uh, like notable changes from the outside. Whereas right. the, the detailed commit messages are, the nitty gritty, what what bug fix and all that sort of stuff you're on. Although keeping putting bug fix numbers in a change log as well, I, I assume you think that that's a good thing. I only think that's a good thing if the bug fix is something that's going to provide context to something that you alluded to. So say you say there's a notable change, right? This is the kind of the it's the test, right? What's what's notable? And people are like, I have no idea what notable. Well, okay, would you mention it? To someone, a friend specifically, if you said, just go upgrade on this version of React, is there anything that I should be aware of? That's notable, right? Yeah. If, if it doesn't matter, then it's nice. It's a great internal refactor. It's amazing that you uh, have fewer vulnerabilities, for instance, to other peer dependencies. That's great. But that's not going to change necessarily, necessarily the experience of the person who's upgrading to that version. So you want to make sure that all the landmines are labeled, <laughs> essentially. And not just what you think is going to be. So for instance, one of the things that I think I, we highlight in the, in the guideline is if you add a feature, that's a potential regression, right? So it's not necessarily a breaking change, but if you mention that you've added a new logging system and I use my own logging system, that may interfere. I'm going to be on the alert. I'm going to be like, hmm, I'm going to be careful when I, when I run my test to make sure that these loggers are playing nice with each other and they're all not, not in the same namespace, for instance. Uh, and that's, to me, like a great example of why mention, why have all the categories maybe in your head all the time, added, removed, updated, uh, you know, and, and breaking change, labeling, stuff like that. So that's why we we have a bunch of like, baseline categories that we recommend like you know deprecated is nice like it's going to come up be aware of it you know you're upgrading to this version you're going to some see some warnings about this is going away soon and that's kind of that, a establishing a relationship with the person consuming your releases yeah that they they know where to look and i i kind of alluded to it or we we have but i, I think I, I guess for people that haven't read this this keep a change log or aren't familiar this is a kind of a standard that says, really, you should describe what you're doing or describe what the change log is at the top. There's a text format. And then it's kind of a markdown format, or is it, I think it's markdown, um, that yep. says yeah. specifically that you're, what, what, what you're, you know, to list the version, list the, uh, the date in a specific, like, sane date time format of, like, year, month, day. <laughs> And then groups of categories of added, what you added, fixed, changed, removed, and then bullet points under those. And then you can have, like you said, you could have more, you could have deprecated, and that's a good thing to do. Um, but I love the category ideas because, and also this goes like most recent to older. So you can look at the top yes. of the file and get the, the gist of chronological. it. Yep. Yeah. Um, I have seen the seen opposite of people like doing, there's other things that, and it always comes becomes problems. If you put the newest stuff at the bottom, then everybody has to scroll to the bottom to see what the newest yep. stuff is. That's annoying. The other bit is uh, I've seen places where they'll have a version, but then the bullet points have like tags in the middle, like added, like each of the bullets has like a label yep. within it. But that's hard to scan if there's a lot of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And if, You're asking and people also, to parse. Yeah your change log for you, right? Yeah. You're asking them to do that difficult. You can automate that with very little work, right? It's just like scan for the word added and stop saying that, group it under a heading, and then yeah. boom, if I only care about what you added, then you've, you've made my life so much easier. 
Well, and, and also even, it could be the same person. So if I'm looking at another project yeah, and I thinking about upgrading, the first thing I w- I'm going to look at probably is what cool stuff was there new cool stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Um, also, is there some major bug fix that I really should care about that uh, maybe I don't care about, but I should. Um, and then, and then right before I actually pull the trigger and upgrade, I'm going to go, wait a second. Am I using anything that's been removed or deprecated? that i need to be aware of um and also just to be honest i'll probably skip that part until my tests fail exactly Um, and then when my tests fail i'll go back and go oh did 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 something change that i didn't pay attention to but there's a place for you to go and this is kind of like seems almost so obvious these days and it's just like it's only 10 years later basically i don't know what date you asked me what date it started i think 2015 is when keeper change log was first so it, it was only a year or two after maybe 2014 um, so it's not that old, and uh, we can easily see it because there's a change log. Um, so the first release, yes, yeah, 2014. The first like point release was 001 in uh, May 31st, 2014. So we're nine years, um, and it was very, very basic too. But like the central, I just really almost religious debate that I had with people saying, like, I know there's no news. .md or news.txt is one way to say it. There's so many other ways to call the file. Just call it a changelog. Routinely in vernacular, when we're just having conversations among developers, we don't say the notes, the news, the whatever, the history. We say the changelog. <laughs> so if yeah. you name it that, it'll stand out in the in the root of your project. And if you don't, then at least, you know, as long as there's at least a place where we're in good shape, right? There's at least a place you will go back to when your tests are failing. But that's yeah. even asking a lot. A lot of people would not have that file. Uh, big projects sometimes, like I remember OAuth integration uh, packages that I, I was using at the time didn't have, just didn't bother. It was like, oh, just read the commits. Uh, OAuth? No, yeah. come on. <laughs> Like you're, you're essentially, so I think Nate at the time kind of gave me the idea uh, because of him describing like things you can trust, right? You look at maintainers, you know, how many issues are open, kind of like the the typical kind of 10 pole. Ooh, is this a good project, bad project based on, and there's a bunch of tools that automate that now, but I think it says a lot when you're saying before I release this thing, I'm just going to skim through all we did and just give you a, a little little summary, categorized, dated, that you can refer to. And then there's other extra features that are in the, the changelog guidelines. So I describe them as guidelines more than a standard necessarily because I want that barrier to entry to be as low as it can possibly be. I don't want yeah. you to fail a parser. I don't want you to get mad and, and then bike shed your changelog so that it has exactly the right formatting. I just want you to have one. And that's why it's called keep a change log. Just, just keep it. So, and one of the categories at the top is, is, um, not the version, but unreleased. So, um, should this be being updated during commits though, then, um, when, when does it kept it? It depends what you do, right? So if you have maintainers uh, and you're a solo team developing your thing and you, you don't have contributors, so internal projects, Initially, I just meant for keep a change log. Un- yeah, mo- most of these, both projects were intended for open source. But I quickly realized that a lot of people were getting values from this across the board, partly you know, closed source and other kinds yeah. of projects because, you know, they have to manage multiple maintainers or multiple contributors. I would say the unreleased section is best for open source projects once a PR is merged, once a, a, a larger unit of contribution is merged so that you can say, okay, well, that unit of stuff is definitely notable. Let's put it unreleased so we remember to talk about it. In the, it's kind of a staging area, essentially, so that okay. I don't have to reparse everything that happened, make your life easier. You don't have to use unreleased, but it's also nice, say, in your case, when you're looking at upgrades that you're making to some packages or even a language, you can be like, oh, the tests are failing on this thing or it's passing on this upgrade, but the next one that they're working on, if I check out you know, the main branch, they're going to change a bunch of stuff that was deprecated because it's in the unreleased section. So I'm going to get yeah. ready for that. Yeah, Super helpful. 
Uh, also, um, uh, one of the things you mentioned in the other interview was uh, um, curating it. So um, yeah. I like the idea of doing an unreleased section just so that once things, it can actually be messier. It's not, not, it isn't all the commits, but it could be messier than the stuff in the version releases because once yes. you decide on a version, you can go through that whole list and go, is this really notable? Do users really have to care about this? Exactly. Um, and edit it there. So that's cool. I think that that was, that was a section where a lot of conversations happened because of merge conflicts. A lot of people were, were um, concerned about encouraging people submitting pull requests or merge requests, uh, putting changes in the change log, because if, it, if they do it when they checked out the main branch and then the main branch diverges, then you get to resolve these fun line-by-line, uh, line, you know, problems so if you do unreleased at least all the problems you'll have will be in unreleased right so i'll be at yeah. the top of the change log so it's a little easier there you can also say it's not your job as a as a contributor to update the change log that's my job or we do it at the end when we're rebasing yeah. and combining everything well actually and so the a couple of the tools that i've been looking at are around this this idea of um if you're you're gonna if everybody's editing this one file, then you're gonna have merge conflicts because they're all editing the same like top line thing. Um, so uh, I I was gonna ask you. We were briefly talked about this before we started recording. What are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on the tooling around change log? For that particular example of managing, you know, um, churn on the file itself, yeah. I I get it. I'll I'll give you the skepticism I had way back then was people have this reactive instincts to just want to just put tools on everything. This is not a tooling issue. This is a human communication issue. This is you not taking the time to just slow down and synthesize as a human would. Now, if you want to go use ChatGPT to summarize all the commits and, and it comes up with something actually useful that you feel like, wow, that's actually pretty good. That's how I would describe it. Go ahead. Automate that. Use that API. Send all your commits. Get a summary where it does the job for you. But that's the thing is a lot of these tools constrain you to change your process to become basically the output of the changelog is everything that matters, not what you're working on. And and I have I thought it was a bad idea at the time, and I didn't have evidence. After working for years using, and I'm not trying to say bad things about people who like commits to be formatted a certain way, but after using commit formatting tooling for work for years with teams of highly productive people, the constant friction they cause when you're trying to describe a commit and say, this is what this means, this is what this changes, and now I have to put a little namespace or explain what kind of change it is at the time you're making the work is not the moment I want you to yeah. be necessarily thinking about the change log. That's, that's not the time. And you end up stepping into the rug. Yeah, okay. That's not to say that they're not really, really good tools that, for instance, will say... Un unmerge conflict something because uh, someone you you want your contributors to add a changelog entry and it'll figure out okay they had checked out the old version of main we'll just shift stuff around and make everything better and then fix that for you completely understandable glue stuff and and just quality of life stuff I completely understand and encourage but what I mentioned prior is the reason why I've never added a tool section to to keep a changelog and. I might in you know the next major version only to say what I just said to you, which is like, there's a place in time for tools. Remember the goal yeah. is not to make yourself a slave <laughs> to the change log. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's the, the point is communication. If, and if the solution is communicate with everybody better, uh, maybe that's it. Uh, yeah. There, I've had a lot uh, project projects, open source projects that I've worked with where, the the changelog entry comes in at the review time, where uh, somebody's yeah. um, uh, made a commit and it, and they get encouraged. Wow, this looks great! You you know mm -hmm. you you fixed a thing. Thanks. Um, we're about ready to merge it in, but we'd like it to describe it to the end user. Can mm -hmm. you write a little snippet to say 
you know, how this can be used or something. And, and I think that's a, and like you said, during PR time, pull request, when you're about, it doesn't even have to be at the beginning of the PR, but when it's about to get accepted, that might be the right time to think about how you're going to describe the change. So it's good. It's, it's definitely better at the end. Uh, I've seen that happens in larger projects like Rails, for instance, like they routinely say, hey, hey, hold on, hold on for making, first of all, we haven't merged it yet. So we don't know what it's going to actually look like. So maybe you're doing this work for nothing, right? Or you'll have to change yeah. so much of the feature that you're submitting that you'll have to redo the change log entry anyway. Yeah. Um, okay, so you mentioned a future version. So is there a version that right now we're at like version 1.0. Oh, it's 1.1.0. So that's right. Uh, so that that so it's a very minor upgrade. So the the big change in 1.1 1. 1, uh, was to add a um, I think the section where we're talking about inconsistent changes, which is the kind of realization that hey versioning a thing that you've asked people to translate in 25 languages uh it's hard <laughs> and so we realized uh oh if i add one category i'm basically invalidating the version for every other language so i have to okay. be a lot more purposeful and this is why the project hasn't you know changed the language so much um, but just uh. simplify the process and and try to get as many translations as possible. So I think I mentioned to you it's it's translated and I try to count earlier. I, I said it in the email when we talked to each other, but it's like more than twenty. I think twenty two or more. And and we're talking like not just like Spanish and French and obvious ones, but like it's it's translated in Turkish and and Chinese and Japanese and like Russian and wow. so like just like so many. And this is where the the that blows my mind a little bit is that when i say i want the bar to be low this is exactly i think what i never dreamed of hoping for um, um is that huh. it would be accessible enough of a guideline that you get people from all over the world kind of looking it up and sometimes i'd check um curiosity just like checking like referring sites and like where where is traffic coming from? I'd see like just dev.azure.com, for instance, like bitbucket.org, like big, you know, companies that do code hosting or things like that saying like, check that out. And I'd be yeah. like, okay, well, I, I guess, I guess we did something, right? Yeah. Um, the other ones were, I think the, the digital service or um, 18F, the, the US digital service had kind of like a guidelines for developing internal tools or even just like, Public-facing tools that reference keep the change logs. So did the, the the UK office for the same, and it's just it kind of melted in my brain because I honestly, this is w one little website explaining a format. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful website, by the way. That was that was designed by uh, Tyler Fortune, who was a coworker of mine uh, at Code School and Pluralsight for a long time, and it it's you know it's uh, digestible. It's that's about it. Yeah. Uh, but the amount of, just to give you a basic idea, I think in the last years, last few years, it's about 200,000 people a year, like peruse, unique people peruse, wow. keep a change log. And I don't know how many of them, I think I've, I've done searches on GitHub to see, because people, people sometimes link to, this is for, following the format from keepachangelog.com, so you can kind of search for that. And there's so many results. And I think that's, a direct consequence of making it simple and not yeah. having so many hoops to jump through to support um, that people can adapt it in the ways that make sense for them. Well, and also like as a project, I'm, I don't have to explain why I'm formatting this way. I can just say I'm doing that. You, you want to know, yeah. go re read it. Right. Um, now, it's so, all are, so yeah, for next versions, you, you're, yeah. Specifically are you going to change versions? the order? Uh, like, you're going to do like uh, <laughs> the newest last on the version no. two? No. <laughs> so see that that's it's. I, I I would never do something like that. I think what we'll do is probably more focused on making translation updating easier. Uh, so it's okay. going to be tokenizing. So there's some some really in interesting suggestions, especially lately on terminology, right? So it's really really hard. And I didn't like. My professional career started in the U.S., so I it's it's so hard for me. I that's why I didn't translate Keep a Channel in French myself because I have, I have no idea how to say most software development things in French, and even in 
I think it's Russian. Someone submitted something saying like, we don't use Russian to describe changelog entries and you know the categories. We use English because that's just the lingua franca. So while the oh, explanation is going to be in Russian, the title and the headings are going to be in English because obviously most software is written in English, I think at least in a large part of the world. So it's going to be things like that. And I think in 2.0, I'm also going to try to, like I mentioned, talk about tooling and and give people the pros and cons there, uh, not link directly to specific tools, which a lot of people really want a recommendation from the project on tooling. But tooling all, always evolves and yeah. it's, it's a moving target, whereas like the simplicity of this, I think, yields, yields best results. Well, there. if you're a Python developer... You just, and you're worried about tooling, just listen to the next two episodes. So. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Speaking of teasing. Uh, yeah. And then if you're, if you're a Ruby or a Rails developer, uh, it, I believe that Bundler, the packaging tool, actually encourages you to have a code of product, have a release, you know, you know a version number and all that, that stuff. But I think if you do bundle in it, I haven't done it in a while, but if you, if you type uh, bundle in it, which is how you make a new Ruby package, with Bundler, uh, and then you go through the process, it encourages you to do these things. Just like, hey, do you want to make a change like, Do you want to make a license file? Do you want to make these things? I think yeah. those are great tooling integrations, essentially, or nudges to, to use good practices. Yeah. Well, and there and there's some of those growing, there's, there's a handful and they're growing uh, tools in the Python community to essentially help you initialize a project. Um, uh, so the, the, the tough part is, is the, what kind of a project is it? Yeah. Because people that are library developers think everything's a library and people <laughs> that are application developers think yes. everything's an application. And then there's just script writers that just want to like a little script and, be and done. They, yeah. yeah. Um, so the portability is one of those aspects relating to tools, right? Because a lot of, so a lot of people recommended tools that were like community tools, very interesting, check it out, try it out, see if it works for you. That's that's my recommendation. Yeah. There are tools like GitHub that do things kind of like Keep It Changelog, right? There's GitHub releases, which has been there, I think, almost as long as Keep It Changelog has been a thing. Um, GitHub has had a release section they added to where tags were for Git tags. So yeah. you could tag things. Initially, it was just tags, and then they made it a section where you could draft a release and then associate a release with notes to a tag. That was a kind of headache to think about back then because it's a really awesome feature and I want people to do things more easily, but it's not portable. Yeah. So wherever your repo ends up, you'll have to reproduce this GitHub releases kind of section or you'll have to maintain both and have the changelog be a text file in your repo and kind of copy that stuff over. So here, tooling may, would make sense for me, right? So if you have a source file that's portable and you want to maintain that and copy that over to GitHub releases or GitLab releases, that makes sense to me, right? So you don't have to do the same thing twice. And then there is tooling to take the releases and, and release do the, the opposite. Yeah, right. and create a changelog from it. Um, and I guess that's fine if you want that to be your canonical source. It yeah, doesn't make sense to me, but sure. Uh, the and the one of the things I heard, I can't remember who I heard it from, was um, in discussing this, is that uh, there's a lot of history and everything, commit messages and everything in Git. Uh, but yes, um, the we should have enough documentation with the source code itself. So that if you take uh, download a zip file or uh, of the repository or do a shallow clone, mm -hmm. uh, yep. um, you have enough information to continue the project without exactly. the history. So, and that that's why portability matters so much. I think. Yeah. Uh, and I not, I love that because I I actually hate looking through history. I mean, the like for instance, if in the upgrade model, if you're upgrading a tool from like very far long ago to try to just, and it's not working. How far back do you need to go? So many um, pages. Yeah. Well, you have to click on next page on, on releases so much because different releases paginate differently because there's more text yeah. in them and they actually paginate based on length 
of copy, not on number of releases. Right. I think. Okay. Uh, but I'm just even thinking like, I want, I got to fix my thing. I want to upgrade, but I, I, I can't upgrade that far or where's the, where, where's the breaking change and being able to look at a change log and go, Oh, the feature that is breaking is this. And that was changed like three versions ago. So I'll upgrade to right before that. Exactly. And then, and then step through it. Um, so I don't have to do a whole binary search of the entire version trace. And the, the tooling can find its way around good, good documentation like this. Because Dependabot, for instance, was a Ruby-based project that started reading. There's other projects before Gymnasium did, did stuff like that. But it was like parsing change logs. You know, you don't necessarily need a hard format. As long as it's separated in sections, you'll be able to say like, okay, there's a date here and a bunch of text below. Okay, can we diff that? Instead of diffing the commits themselves, and oh, then yeah. now uh, Dependabot, when it opens on GitHub, at least, I think I think there's similar tools, but it will tell you you're 15 major versions behind, and these are the changes in these 15 versions that oh, actually cool. are in the change log. Yeah. So you can just, un I think you open a little detail, like expandable little HTML snippet, and you can see they added this, and they removed that, and they deprecated this, and there was breaking changes. And it's such, a, every time I see this, it's just, I'm so delighted of the, yeah. You know the effort that would be just hours and hours yeah. of you parsing through that. Well, I guess we should wrap it up, but I just want to say thanks for making this. I think the whole world said, "I don't know if I really care what it looks like, but somebody has to pick." Um, <laughs> exactly. And you picked, uh, and thanks. <laughs> You're welcome, and it's a, it's a lot of contributions from a lot of people around the world. And and if you know a language that isn't in Keep a Change Log, or your wanting to contribute in that way uh the repo accepts you know uh, pull requests for that um so it's very helpful okay and uh we'll we link to the we'll have uh some information about you in the linked in the show notes as well um you looks like uh you have uh your name uh olivierlacan.com um super easy so that's easy nice well thanks a lot and uh, we'll catch up later thanks And now here's a few-minute discussion with Eddie Barksdale from Porkbun. Thanks so much to Porkbun for sponsoring. And as a special thank you to our listeners, use the link porkbun.com slash TNC and get $1 off your next domain. Eddie, thanks. Uh, what's your last name? Uh, Barksdale. Barksdale. And how long have you been with uh, Porkbun? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the marketing specialist uh, for porkbun.com. I've been with us for about three years now. Why should people choose Porkbun and why is Porkbun different than, say, any other registrar? Yeah, so Porkbun, we're definitely still a little bit smaller and newer than what's out there. We've been around since 2015. Um, our goal the entire time has been to provide a mind blowing experience, as we like to call it. Um, our focus is on pricing, you know, uh, provide the consistently lowest price that we possibly can. Uh, Whenever we get promotions, we pass those on to our customers as much as possible. Um, on top of that, we like to provide as much for free as possible. So we provide free who is privacy, free SSL certificates, free email forwarding. These are things that a lot of other registrars will charge you for. Um, sometimes, you know, $20, $30 a month even. Yeah. Uh, whereas we're just, we're giving it away. Um and even even despite the low price, even despite giving as much as possible away, we also want to provide high quality support. So we have our own internal support team. Nothing's outsourced. They're available via chat, email, and phone. Um, 365 days a year, so even holidays, weekends. And we're not quite 24-7, but uh, we've got, I think, 13 hours of coverage every day. I've got a whole bunch of domains that like intend at some point to do something with, um, can I transfer them to pork bun? Yeah. Um, we have, like I said, some of the lowest rates in general that includes transfer and renewal costs. Um, mm -hmm. of course, if you're someone with a huge wealth of domains, we offer a few other options to try and, you know, help make that even more affordable, such as bypassing credit card fees with, the by paying via like bank ACH transfers. Oh, okay. Nice. That's pretty cool. The The other thing I had, question I had is um, like, 
what happens when a domain um, like starts to expire? Like, like let's say, uh, like for instance, uh, testandcode.com. When it starts to expire, I want to make sure that I have, I don't lose it. Um, what's is there, Do you have things in place to remind me to renew or things like that? Yeah, um, most domains you know? generally uh, after they expire, you know, you still have a bit of time um, to renew them and make sure everything is up. We typically give a 10 day grace period after expiration where everything is just fine. There's no extra fees, nothing to worry about. Um, you can be 10 days late and still still get that in. Okay, um, but do you, do you email me ahead of time to warn me yeah. that things are happening? Yeah, we start renewal notices about 60 days ahead of time. Um, oh, so we okay. have one at 60 days, 30 days, week of, and then start doing daily unless you've specifically <laughs> opted out of like audit wanting it, wanting it to renew at all. No bug the heck out of me. Yeah. I, <laughs> I like it. So, um, this is great. And I, I'm really excited that it's local because, um, uh, I know, I know, don't know if it matters to too many people, but I'd like to support, um, Oregon businesses and, and uh, there's a, a lot of people that work for Pork Bun that are Oregon and Washington. Is that correct? Yep, um, definitely. Over half our team is in Oregon and Washington. Nice. Uh, we've started branching out a little bit, so we we do cover I think all four quarters of the U.S. Now we've got folks working in California, Florida, and even Maine. But it's kind of global. If somebody's uh, outside of the area, they can still use Pork Bun, right? Oh yeah, we we try and have as much um, international support as we can. Uh, carry as many, you know, different country code TLDs. So your .de's for Germany, .uk. Uh, working on a few others as well. Nice. Well, I'm pretty excited to to switch some of my domains to Pork Bun, and um, uh, super excited about the company. So thanks for uh, talking to me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. That's all for now. Now go ahead and test something. <laughs>